going, everybody? Sean Birdsong here, Sharon Lettelon. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Court. Today, we have a special, special guest with us today, Fox Sports analyst, co-host of The Odd Couple, and founder of King Movement, Mr. Chris Bussard himself. What's going on, sir? I'm great, man. It's, it's good to be on with you, and uh, I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Appreciate it. Now, you know, before we get into, you know, your career and, and everything, you know, I want to ask you, you know, obviously you're very busy, you know, I appreciate you taking the time out to uh, be with us. You know, I, I know you have a heavy schedule, um, but I want to ask you some, you know, NBA news, been a lot going on um, with, you know, LeBron, the Lakers, um, AD injuries, and also James Harden going over to the Nets. So There's a lot of things going out, going around now. What are your thoughts on the season um, as a whole to this point? And who do you possibly have coming out? Um, of the, you know, the playoffs to get into the finals this year? Man, um, <laughs> there are so many levels to what you just asked. I mean, obviously there's so much going on in the season. I think one, you're dealing with a lot of injuries. Uh, mm -hmm. Two of the, the main candidates or top candidates for MVP, Joel Embiid and LeBron James have suffered injuries and now James Harden last night uh, or recently with the hamstring injury, although I don't think that's serious. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder if that, and I know a lot of players feel that could be related to the short off season, the 71 days, which is mm -hmm. a little, what, a little over uh, two months right. versus typically the three and a half or four months that guys may get. So that's one thing. Uh, I think we're also seeing a ton of blowouts. And I think that that's related to the, the prevalence of the three-point shot. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you shoot a lot of threes and you're not, and you're cold, then you're liable to get blown out. Or if, if the, especially if the other team's hot. Um, mm -hmm. oh, and it also has made teams be able to come back from big deficits at times. Mm -hmm. But I still feel like I'm seeing more blowouts than ever. A game that, you know, late in the first quarter, early in the second quarter, teams down 20-something, and they never can, can come back and get back in the game. Uh, obviously, a lot of movement. This is the player – I call it the, the player empowerment movement uh, that kind of LeBron James sparked. I don't think he purposely was necessarily trying to spark something like this, but that's been a byproduct of him going to Miami with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh in 2010. So you saw yeah. – James Harden forced his way to uh, Brooklyn, and now Blake Griffin and, and LaMarcus Aldridge have joined them. Uh, I, I do like Brooklyn. I think Brooklyn's the best team in the league. Now, if they win it all, which I've picked them to do, it would be fairly unprecedented for them to do that. One, it's rare for a team, no matter how talented, to come together in the first season and win a championship. Yeah, we saw with the Miami Heat, as great as they were with LeBron, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh, they didn't win it their first year. I think they should have, but they didn't. Right. Um, you you've seen, you know, even the Lakers when they had Shaq, Kobe, Carl yep. Malone, and Gary Payton, they didn't win it that year. Nope. Uh, Charles Barkley, Hakeem Olajuwon, Clyde Drexler didn't win it. You know, so you've seen a lot of these teams. I can go even back to the seventies when you had Jerry West, Will Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, and Gail Goodrich and didn't win the championship. So uh, this would be unprecedented. It's happened before with Boston in 2008 
with Kevin right. uh, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, and Paul Pierce. But for them, the Nets to win it this year, one, again, in their first season, you have a first-year head coach, and mm-hmm. you have had so many players in and out of the lineup. Like yeah. Kevin, Gar- Kevin Durant, uh, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving have only played seven games together. Right. And so if they maybe play 15 to 20 games together by the time we start the playoffs, it's very hard to imagine them winning it. But I think their talent is such uh, that I think they can. And I, I, I'm predicting them to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the key there has been James Harden, and that's why I think he's got a great argument for MVP if this injury doesn't keep him out too long. Um, mm-hmm. His unselfishness, to, to his willingness to go to the point guard position and become more of a passer than a scorer. When he initially got there, he went from about 23 shots a game in Houston to like 15. And I think Mm -hmm. that set a tone on that team where Kyrie saw that, Kyrie Irving, and he willingly was like, all right, I'll go to to the two guard. And you play the point. And everyone else is touching the ball. Joe Harris, Bruce Brown, the role Mm -hmm. players, Jeff Green. And now they're, because they're involved in the offense and not just watching their two superstars, they're giving more effort on defense. So their defense has become adequate. They're not going to be great, but it's it's adequate enough, I think, with that offensive firepower. So uh, that's why I think Harden is is playing like the MVP right now. But those are just a few thoughts. There's certainly so many different things to get into. But overall, I think it's been an exciting season. Um, I think there are three teams in the East that will battle to get to the finals. Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and uh, Brooklyn. Uh, Not to totally discount Miami and maybe if Boston can get it together, but I think those three are head and shoulders above the rest. And then in the West, you have the Clippers and the Lakers. Uh, I think Denver helped itself with the trade deadline. Utah is a really good team, but I don't see Utah being able to win the West because they, they don't really have a collection of stars Mm-hmm. Uh, transcendent star- superstars, or even one at this point. Um, so that's kind of how I, a general view of this uh, season. Right. Now, you obviously have a wealth of knowledge, you know, being in this business for a long time. Um, you know, I want to take it back a little bit to where it started. You know, you're from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. You know, what was that like growing up? Um, you know, in the Broussard household, and you know, did you did you always have inspirations of you know sports and all that? What was that time period for you like back in Louisiana? Well, I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. My last name Broussard is Creole. I'm Creole, yeah. uh, or my father's side at least. And that Broussard is like Smith down in Louisiana. You know, there <laughs> there's a town called Broussard. There's streets called Broussard. There. There's a restaurant even called Broussard in, in the French Quarter. Now, I, interestingly, my parents met. They went to Xavier, HBCU, Xavier University in New Orleans. And my father, whose last name obviously was Broussard, he couldn't go to that restaurant when they were students in the 60s because it was segregated. It was the white Broussards that owned that restaurant. And so, um, but I, I was born in Baton Rouge, but didn't grow up down there. Uh, I, we moved to Cincinnati, Ohio when I was a baby. That's where my father grew up. He was born in Louisiana, but 
grew up in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And then I moved around a lot. So I lived in Cincinnati for about seven years, moved to Indianapolis, Indiana for like four and a half years, to Syracuse, New York for a year and a half, to Des Moines, Iowa for about two and a half years, and then to Cleveland, Ohio toward the end of my junior year of high school. And then I graduated high school from there. My father worked for Travelers Insurance Company, so we got transferred a lot. Um, so that was what it was like growing up. Now, sports was always, you know, a huge part of my life. I'll tell you a story. When I was about seven, my aunt asked me, Chris, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, uh, a football player. And she <laughs> said, okay, that's nice, but if you don't make it as a football player. <laughs> And I said, uh, a basketball player. <laughs> and she said, all right, Chris, I get it. If you can't play in the NFL or the NBA, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, a uh, baseball player. You know, so <laughs> sports was huge. I mean, I read the sports page religiously. When I read Sports Illustrated okay. religiously growing up. Whenever we could choose a book in school to do a book report on, you know, our personal choice, it was always a sports book. <laughs> Yeah, and I played football, basketball, and baseball through high. I played football and basketball through high school. I played baseball for my first couple of years of high school. So uh, I was just sports was really my life, to be honest. And uh, my father was into it. My brother was into it. He was a year younger than me. Mm -hmm. And um, as far I didn't know, I mean, I, I never really thought of, and that's one thing I'm I'm glad today. I think a lot of young African American kids are growing up with aspirations to be broadcasters or sports writers or coaches, you know, to work in the business outside of being on the court. I don't know that back then we thought that way because you didn't see a lot of black broadcasters uh, or writers. Right. And um, so I don't know that I thought about it. Uh, I, I got, I had some inklings, um, a friend of mine in, in high school mentioned he wanted to be a sports writer. So I thought about that, like, man, I love sports. That might be interesting. But it, I really came into thinking about being a sports writer my sophomore year in college. I was at Overland College in Ohio. And I looked around at my friends, my teammates, uh, and most of whom were African-American. And they all had plans on what they were going to do out after college. They were going to graduate school, going to get their MBA, going to law school. The woman I was dating who I ended up marrying, she knew she was going to go to medical school. And I didn't have an idea what I wanted to do. And I got scared. I said, man, I got two and a half years left before I get out and have to become a responsible adult. And um, so I said, let me come up with a formula to think about what I want to do. So I came up with something I enjoyed, which was sports, plus something I was gifted at, which was writing. So I always was a gifted writer. Uh, I used to write rhyme, raps. I started writing raps when I was like 10 years old, <laughs> which actually helped me because yeah. it taught me how to tell a story uh, yeah. with a flow, you know, it increased my vocabulary. Uh, because I was looking for words that rhymed in the thesaurus and stuff. I wasn't a gangster rapper, you know. So, <laughs> so um, that was, I said, let me couple sports and writing and see if I can become a sports writer. And fortunately, I always had good grades. So I was able to 
turn that dream into a reality. So um, that's a, a obviously very condensed version of uh, my upbringing to some degree. Right. I mean, you talked about you traveled a lot as a kid, and I know a lot of young kids, they go through those experiences, um, you know, from home to home or just state to state. What kind of effect, if any, did it have when you was a young kid? Did you enjoy seeing new places or was it kind of like tough to probably have friends at a certain area and then you have to move away from them? What was that experience for you like moving yeah, on? My first two times we were told we were moving, I cried like a baby, you know, <laughs> because like you said, you had from Cincinnati to Indianapolis, then from Indianapolis to New York, Syracuse, I, I had, we were, you know, good friends and schools mm -hmm. I enjoyed and all that. Um, but obviously you get, you get older, you got used to it. Um, sports made it easier because I was a good athlete. And obviously mm -hmm. as boys, you know, that was a huge part of our culture. And so when we get somewhere and I could show I was a pretty good athlete, you know, it's easier to make yeah. friends and you start playing and stuff like that. Um, it taught me a few things. Uh, one, it enabled me, it taught me how to get along with different types of people. Exactly. Some places we lived were mostly African-American. Some places we lived were very mixed, multicultural, integrated. And some places we lived were, were overwhelmingly white. You know, and I learned how to get to get get along with all different types of people. Um, it also made your family closer because initially when you moved, that's all you had was each other. You know, your my brother, I have one brother. Um, so we we were close and obviously your, my parents. Um, and it also taught me that wherever I was at, I could be happy. Mm -hmm. Now, there were places I liked better than other places. Um, but I generally was happy and made friends wherever we were at, even in Des Moines, Iowa, you know? And so, um, so it, those are things I learned. Um, but, you know, I think being uprooted, you know, it's, it has some type of effect on me because I know with my kids, I have two daughters and when they, we, we've lived, we, they were born in Cleveland but we moved to New Jersey when they were babies. So five months old or something like that. And we've been in Jersey ever since. And I really had this strong sense of not wanting to uproot them. Mm. Now it wasn't, I didn't consciously feel like yeah. because I was moving around, I don't want to move them around. It was, I, I, didn't, I don't think of any conscious negatives that I felt like I experienced, but they were happy in their school. They had their friends that they liked. And I just really felt strongly, I don't want to uproot them from that. So, you know, I think that had an effect. I probably would have preferred to stay in one or two of the places that I liked the most. But overall, you know, it was a lot of positives that came out of it. And, um, you know, it, it worked out for the best. Well, following that, I really like what you said about um, the movement of integrating with different people. And I'm sure that still, you know, helps you in what you do. I'm originally from um, the Caribbean, from Trinidad, and came to this country, I think I was five years old, four or five years old. And, you know, that transition, like you said, it's such a great skill of learning to just how to integrate with other people. And different things and forming relationships 
because if you go on the basis, I'll say as I, you know, have a diverse amount of friends, um, because you can go into the, the spectrum of, you know, talk to a person as just a human being, right? you know? Right, right. So I talk to everyone, Sean, let you know that <laughs> you know, I, I, I talk to everyone, you know, and they're like, can you always shut up? I'm just like, no, you know, so what do you think? <laughs> but it's about, I come at people as a human being, you know, I said, I, what is your race? Um, my race is a human race. Now right. I have different cultural backgrounds. So if we can just start as a basis to have an open dialogue of knowing what works for you, like you said, that worked for you with your parents, but you wanted for your children to just be in one place because it is right. hard for right. as a as a child to establish such relationships and then move forward. So I really commend you because I can relate to it. But well, I also it, to go, I tell ahead. you, the the first day of school was always just crazy, you know, because you don't know anybody. I remember we moved to Des Moines, Iowa. So I started high school in Des Moines, Iowa. So we 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 drove to Des Moines, Iowa, and stayed in the hotel the first night we got there. And the next morning, mm-hmm. so we got there at night. So the next morning at like 6 a.m., I had to get up and go to football practice. So I get my father drives me to the football practice. It's a big, it's the only Catholic high school in the city of Des Moines. And so it was like 105 boys trying, you know, for the freshman team all white it was one other black guy who was his his father was black his mom was white and i'm the only black dude there i don't know anybody they all know each other and i'm the only one with my dad walking me into the practice to talk to the coach (laughs) so so it was just interesting and um again you know you make friends and everything worked out but you know those first days of school man you know we're always I don't want to say nerve wracking, but you, you know, you're nervous, you know, as right. a kid and, and all that. But, but like I said, it, it all worked out and I had some great experiences in all Absolutely. of the different places. Right. So you attended Holy Name High School in, in Cleveland, right? And you would stand out in football and basketball inducted into the high school hall of fame. Which one do you like better? Cause you've started out by the football. Which one did you really like better uh, yeah my football was my first love like i I loved football uh my dream was to be and and this is you know back in the 70s uh and 80s when i was growing up but usc was tailback you you know oj simpson anthony davis charles white like my dream was to be the next great tailback at usc (laughs) and and i was better in football naturally like growing up uh I was a better football player than basketball. Um, And mostly through high school, I was better. But my senior year, when I played in Ohio uh, at at Holy Name, I I had a good year in football, but I I had a hit pointer for most of the year as a wide receiver. So it was, uh, you know, my speed wasn't quite what it would be if I wasn't injured. Um, but I but I had a nice year. We we made the state playoffs. Um, there was a big powerhouse in Cleveland called St. Ignatius, which actually a few years after I graduated became a national powerhouse, one of the top teams okay. in the country. But we beat them in the in the regular season to get to the playoffs. I scored a touchdown, caught a touchdown pass that game. So I had a nice season. 
Um, and then we started basketball and um, I had a, I had a really good season. Uh, we, we went to the district final uh, and St. Ignatius, I guess, got revenge on us. They beat us in the district final, but that was the <laughs> furthest that Holy Name had been in like 14 years. Wow. And um, so they, they looked at it like, you know, I had one year there and I was able to help the team get further than it had been in a long time. Uh, I ended up playing in the city, this Cleveland, greater Cleveland. They had an all-star game for the best mm-hmm. seniors in the, in the city. And I was picked to play in that. So I had a nice, nice uh, high school career and um, in Cleveland at Holy Name. And it was just an honor to, to uh, be inducted into the Hall of Fame. So at Holy Name, basketball ended up working out better. <laughs> but um, I, my first love was football. I was recruited to play football and basketball in college, but division three schools, you know, mm-hmm. um, and actually Oberlin where I went had recruited me for both. And, but the thing about football, the mm-hmm. older I got, um, the more painful it became. <laughs> and, and by the time like, I was a senior, physically or mentally. School, oh yeah, man. Cause you know, in football, I was a running back early in my high school career and I was kind of mm-hmm. small. Um, and that, you know, taking hits by the time the season's ended, you, you, you know, your body's worn down and then it's getting cold. And so you're even practicing is cold out and your hands hit your helmets, hitting your hands when you practice. And that was, you know, and so I, by the time I graduated from high school, I felt like, you know what, if I could go to college and just play in the games, I would play football, but <laughs> if I got to practice and all that stuff too, no, nah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to basketball. So, uh, so I ended up playing basketball, and that obviously has kind of become the sport that people associate me with. Right. Now at Oakland, so tell us a little bit more about your college experience. Since you said you played basketball there, um, and did you have any aspirations of playing professionally? Well, I was a silly, silly high school kid with with ridiculous dreams. <laughs> I mean, obviously, like I said, I wasn't a, an all American. I wasn't even all state. Um, I was a good player, you know, uh, a local star. But um, yeah, you know, still going into ho- college, you had these dreams that maybe it'll work. I have a great career, and maybe I'll get drafted because you know a few guys have been drafted from Division three. Uh, you, you, Sean, you probably remember a guy, Greg Grant, who was 5'7". Mm-hmm. And, and I think he played in Phoenix. He had a, actually had some nice moments in the league. He was drafted out of Division Three. Devin and George, I think. Devin George was with, with, with the Lakers. Yep. Yeah, he was Division Three. They actually had a guy from Oberlin who was drafted, like, in the early 80s uh, by mm-hmm. the Cavaliers who got in a training camp. And, you know, so that's when they had, like, 12 rounds or something crazy in the NBA draft. <laughs> but so, yeah, that was a dream that once I got to the college uh, dissipated fairly quickly, you know? So, um, but yeah, that, that was a dream of mine. Um, but Oberlin was a great experience because again, being recruited by mm-hmm. division three schools, mostly in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Michigan, like around that general area, most of the schools that I was visiting as a recruit mm-hmm. were lily white, very few African-Americans. And even the teams didn't have 
very many. They have a few. When I went to Oberlin, the almost the entire team was African American, and wow. the coaches the coaches were African American, and that struck me because I wanted to go to a school that had a, a solid black population where I could have a solid black experience, and so um, I found out that Oberlin had this tremendous uh, history of mm -hmm. African American students. Like it was the first college in America to admit African-American students. Wow. It wasn't the first one where there were one or two where an individual African-American had graduated from before Oberlin, but Oberlin actually made it a policy where they would accept students regardless of their race. And because wow. of that, like at the turn of the 20th century, so early 1900s, two out of every three African-American college graduates had gone to Oberlin. Oh, wow. The first black baseball player, Moses Fleetwood, uh, went to Oberlin. First major league African-American player. This is in the 1800s. Um, so when I got to Oberlin, because of that history, they mm -hmm. had a significant African-American population of students. As I said, the basketball team was mostly African-American. They actually had an all-black dormitory. You didn't have to live there. But you could, and they had a lot of cultural things going on there. Yeah. And um, so I lived there my first three years. Um, so it was just, I, I, I saw Overland as a place, and it, it was a great school academically. So I knew it was a good school academically. I could play ball there, and I could have a cultural experience that I wanted to, that I wouldn't have gotten as a lot of the other schools that recruited me. So those are really the reasons that I picked it. And it was, it was, Far enough away from my home, I was. It was like forty-five minutes from where I lived in high school, my parents' house. But it was far enough away where I was on campus. You know, it was a legitimate campus, so I wasn't close to home, but close enough where they could come and see my games and things like that. And it, the last thing about Oberlin was it had a lot of, it has students unlike the majority of schools recruiting me, which has students from that state or the surrounding states. Oberlin has students from all over the world. Oh. Um, the world, like not met the country for sure, mm -hmm. but the world. Um, my wife, I met there. She's from New York City. Um, and so it, it had like, that was unique for a small school mm -hmm. to have students from all over the world. And I actually ended up going there with, um, and these two were African-Americans, but Adrian Fenty, who became the mayor of, Baltimore, D.C., Washington, D.C., he went to Oberlin with me. And um, another woman who ended up becoming the mayor of uh, Baltimore went to Oberlin with me at, you know, same time. So there were a lot of uh, really successful people, you know, yeah. and smart people and stuff like that. So it was, it was a great experience. Now, is that why I, I'm thinking in my mind when you're telling me all of this, is this kind of what parlayed you to get into journalism? Um, you know, at that time, you have all this wealth of knowledge, people you're, you know, talking to, communicating with, not even just sports wise, but off the court. Um, you know, like a, as a side note, I want to really commend you. And I have a lot of respect for guys like you and other journalists that I don't think you guys get your just due sometimes because as athletes and even spectators, they always assume that, People like yourself, um, Stephen A., a lot of these guys just talk sports and don't really know that you guys have a background 
in sports. Yeah. Right. And for you to play football, play basketball, you guys are more than credible um, to give that kind of knowledge. So I just want to say I commend you on that. But when did you start getting your thoughts about journalism um, around that time? No, thank you for that. Um, I yeah, it was at Oberlin. I mean, I grew a lot at Oberlin. Um, just again being exposed to so many different types of people and people from different parts of the country. Um, I mean, Oberlin. I met black opera singers at Oberlin. You know, my 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 wife's best friend. She was a maid of honor in our wedding. Is it is an opera singer? She's half Indian, half African American. Um, one of the guys that was on the basketball team who who played football as well, big dude from the Bronx, uh, was an opera singer. You know, black dude. Like it, it was. So you met so many various types, not only of people, but again, African Americans. You know that it defied all types of stereotypes and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I just grew a lot intellectually, uh, being in that environment. Of course. It was a smaller school, so I got to know the professors well mm -hmm. and being in, you know, individual meetings with them. And that helped me come into my own uh, intellectually. Uh, so I, I think that, yeah, that, that helped me really grow as an individual and look at the world, begin to look at the world a lot differently. Um, and, and yeah, like I said, when I, that's how I came to the idea of, uh, working in journalism, even though Oberlin didn't have a journalism department because mm -hmm. it was a liberal arts school, I majored in English. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I was able to work with professors and talk to them about journalism and they helped me yeah. develop skills that would help me in that field. But um, like I said, it was, I looked around as a sophomore and, and again, looking at people, particularly other black students who had all these aspirations uh, of being not necessarily journalists, but other other fields of study, um, that really led me to say, you know what, let me focus on what I want to get done yeah. and what I want to do with my life. And so it was just, it was a school where, um, you know, I, I ended up growing a lot and learning a yeah. lot there. Right. Not just in class, but, in you life. know, just being in that environment. Right, right. Now you started, you know, at the Plain Dealer, um, and then you, you know, went on to the Akron Beacon Journal, where you, you know, covered the Cleveland Cavaliers as a beat writer. Um, what was that experience breaking into the professional sports realm? How did that come about? And what was that like, you know, being able to cover the Cavs and also, you know, LeBron James um, those first few years in Cleveland? Well, um, I started out in at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Initially, I was in the office. Like, I, they hired me. I was part-time and then with the agreement that as soon as we get a full-time opening, you'll get a full-time job. And so my first, like, nine months, I was literally in the office answering phones from 3 p.m. to 12 midnight. And, and back then, this is before the internet. This is 1990. And so what people would do, you know, now we can just look it up on the internet quickly. Back then, if you, Sean, and your buddies were having a discussion, uh, you would, and you didn't have the answer, you would call the local newspaper. So people would call up and say, hey, my buddies and I are 
one we're arguing over who was the starting what was the starting <laughs> offensive line for the Cleveland Browns in 1977 you know and and, and you either knew it you either had to answer it off the top of your head which most of us couldn't do but you go to get the almanac and look it up <laughs> and all this stuff and that's what I did for the first several months of my job and um and then and it's funny man like the way you progress it's all relative because mm-hmm. I when high school football started so I was sitting my first year there I was sitting in the the you know Friday and Saturday nights I'm in the in the office the newsroom with these other guys and our job was to answer the phone so they would have stringers so when a newspaper so as you know wherever you live like your local newspaper would have little blurbs they'd have a few games where they had big stories about right and then they'd have little blurbs about all the rest of the games in the area right a paragraph or two so my job was the way they did that is they'd have a stringer from a high school who would be at a game between two teams that the the paper didn't send a reporter out to cover but this stringer would call in after the game with hey Cleveland Heights beat Euclid 42 to 20 so and so had three touchdowns 200 yards rush you know they give you all the breakdown and my job was to answer the phone and take down those notes right and and at first that's all we were doing and then a, a couple games, weeks into the season, they let us actually write it up. Just so you write up your little paragraph or two and send it to the desk, the, the editors. And they started getting in the paper. Now, your name wouldn't be on it. But mm-hmm. I remember the, the thrill of just, <laughs> wow, my, I, I wrote that paragraph. Like, you know, like that was a thrill. And right. then, you know, you graduate to your covering games and, you see your byline, and, and I later on when I worked for the New York Times, and again, before the internet became prevalent in the late 90s, being mm-hmm. at the New York Times and being in the airport in Los Angeles or DC or Denver, Colorado or San Antonio, Texas, and seeing the New York Times in the, you know, the store in the airport and your byline being on that, yeah. that was a huge thrill. Because again, most writers, even at big papers, their papers weren't national. And so that was another great thrill. So you just progress to all these levels. But um, yeah, so I so even after about a year in the newsroom, they I started covering high school games and going out and covering high school games. And I'm telling you, like covering the pros is better, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of my best memories are from covering high school sports, you know, in the pros. You go to the arena, they got dinner for you in the press room. Yeah. They they have, you know, they bring the coaches in the press room for you to interview. Yeah. You they print out all the statistics for you, not only for the full game, but quarter <laughs> by quarter. They give you printouts of the quotes from the coach, from the play. You know, like it's all set at the phone. It, everything is set for you. In high school, man, I kept my own stats. And I kept thorough stats. I kept field goal attempts, uh, turnovers, assists, rebounds, like the whole in football. I kept yard yardage rushed, you know, uh, yards received and catch like all of that. And sometimes you're sitting in the stands doing right. this, you know, because right. um, every school didn't necessarily have a little press row 
for you. And then you'd have to talk to the janitor or custodian about opening the principal's office so you could <laughs> literally send your story over the phone. I wrote stories parked in my car at 1030 at night. Um, pitch black, I'm sitting in my car at a gas station writing my story on the phone. And then you got to find a payphone. This is way back. Payphones. To yep. send your story over. I went, there were times I went to clubs or, or bars. Hey, I'm Chris Broussard from The Plain Dealer. I know this sounds crazy, but I'm a writer. I'm a sports writer. I got to send this story in. I'm on deadline. And they'll let you send this, you know, like just wild memories. Um, adventures, really. <laughs> adventures. Driving all over the state, you know, covering different games. And I covered Earl Boykins. Remember Earl Boykins yeah. played the NBA? Nuggets I covered and him. Started out, yeah, started in the yep. CBA and then moved his way yep. up. 5-5. Yeah. Five, five. Yep. Covered him in high school. Uh, James Posey, who ended up having a really nice NBA career, covered him in high school. Wrote stories about those guys. Uh, like met him and interviewed and wrote stories. Uh, Mike Vrabel, now the coach of the Tennessee Titans, covered him in high school. Antoine Winfield, you know, had a great pro career, defensive back. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had some great high school memories, but then going from that to the pros, yeah. um, obviously it's a big jump. It's you get a lot more eyeballs on your stories. And what I tell people now, like college students, because mm -hmm. a lot of kids in college or right out of college, they have aspirations to be, as you said, the next Stephen A. Smith, the next Skip Bayless, the next Michael Wilbon or, mm -hmm. or Rachel Nichols or something. And they want to be at ESPN or they want to be up there debating. You know, I have an opinion. I can be up there with Skip yeah. or Stephen A or something. And I tell them, I say, look, obviously you want to have your goals to get to ESPN or Fox Sports or whatever it is on a national level. But the best way to get there is to excel and dominate where you're at. Mm -hmm. So if you if your first job out of college is at a high school, you know, in Montana covering high school sports, don't be so don't be upset that you're not covering the Green Bay Packers yet and you're not at ESPN. Don't be so focused on that that you can't do well where you're at. The best way you, for you to get to the Packers beat or to the to ESPN or Fox is to stand out in that mm -hmm. high school coverage in Montana. Break the most stories, write the most compelling stories and, and features and things like that. And so that's what kids should focus on. Your first job may not be where you necessarily want to get to, but the best way for you to get to your ultimate goal is to excel where you're at. Don't worry and be yeah. upset that you're not, you know, where you think you should be. Um, and so going to the pros, man, I was just a young, I think I was 26 uh -huh. when I started covering the Cavaliers mm -hmm. and, um, I was so, man, I was so eager. I didn't even think about a pay raise. I don't, I, I, I ain't get a pay raise. And I probably could have and should have. <laughs> It didn't even cross my mind to ask for it. I was just like, oh, yeah, right. I'll do the Cavs, you know. <laughs> I worked that first year, I worked 188 straight days. Wow. Because I didn't take a day off. And I had actually gone, I started, they started me out to get used to it. They put me on the Cleveland Indians as a backup writer. 
And that happened to be 1995 when the Indians went to the World Series for the first time in decades. And so I was with them and I'm writing stories and that was got me acclimated to professional sports and dealing with pro athletes as opposed to high school. And then the day after, I remember the Indians lost to the Atlanta Braves in game in six games, I believe it was. And the next day, the, that was in Atlanta. I wrote that story the very next day. I was in Cleveland at an event for the Cavaliers and started covering the Cavs. And um, again, some great experience, but it was different back then. You know, again, no internet for the, you know, even if they, they had the, the, the beginnings of the internet, yeah. but nobody was paying attention to it. Um, traveling all over the, the, the country. And now this was before LeBron. Yeah, right. this was this was not the LeBron James era. This was the Bobby Phils, Chris Mills, Terrell Brandon era. <laughs> and Michael Teller was the coach. Yeah, right. I yeah. think I think I probably saw LeBron because I was writing for the Akron Beacon Journal, so I was in Akron a lot, and I would be at little street ball tournaments, and mm-hmm. you know where the best kids in the city would play from little kids on up to to guys out of high school and stuff. And um, I, 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 one of the guys that used to put together a lot of those became mm-hmm. a mentor for LeBron and was in his inner circle early on in his career. It wasn't Maverick or Rich Paul, Maverick Carter, Rich Paul, Randy Mims, but he was in his inner circle early in his career. And so I bet LeBron was at, one of these, some of these tournaments that I would be at as a little kid, you know, playing. And I, you know, I just didn't know him at that time. But I'll tell you, when I went to the New York Times, 1998, this guy called me. uh, And this was probably 99 by the time he called me. And he said, hey, he was in Akron. He said, yo, we got the next, uh, we got the next one. We got the next (laughs) Jordan. And I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, yeah, from Akron, right, <laughs> you know, because Ohio was a football state. Right. And obviously right. LeBron was a great football player, too. Basketball, you had good players, but, you know, it wasn't a hotbed. It wasn't viewed as, you know, we, we, we churning out dozens of, of D1 players every year. And so I'm thinking in my mind, yeah, right. He said, I said, what's his name? He said, LeBron James, man. I'm telling I said, so are they playing national competition? Like, is he? You know, yeah, he's like, he's killing it. AAU, when they go to AAU and they play these kids, teams from all over the country, he's killing them. So that was the first time I heard about LeBron. I think he was in seventh or eighth grade, eighth grade maybe. And then, of course, he gradually got on the national scene. And and I'll tell you what, man, for him to fulfill his promise. Now, I happen to think Jordan is the GOAT. I think LeBron is second. But for him to in some people's eyes, be to go and be in that conversation. You know, you know, you know this, Sean, there are a lot of kids that in high school are big names and the best players in the country that don't make it. And if they make it, they don't become stars, you know? Um, And so for him to really fulfill that promise, uh, that was, that was pretty impressive. So I got to give him props on that. Yeah. Right. Now you, you know, you mentioned the New York Times. Um, you covered the Knicks, the Nets. Um, you also were ESPN, the magazine, and you've been an analyst on ESPN and now um, Fox Sports. Um, what you also have your, you know, your your co-host with, you know, Rob Parker, the odd cop, the odd couple. 
what has been the most fun for you given the journey from when you first started, you know, to Akron Beacon all the way to now? What's been the most fun in your whole journalism career? Wow. That's a great question. Um, I, I've enjoyed it all. I've enjoyed it all, virtually all of it. Um, the best experience that I had, I would say was in, I think it was around 2006, maybe 2005, 2006, at ESPN the magazine when I went to Africa. And this was... This was at a time you'll remember when we were getting beat as America in international competitions. Oh yeah, we had lost in the Olympics in 2004, mm -hmm. and then even in like the World Games the next few years we were losing. So we did a big series on how the how different countries are developing their basketball players. So mm -hmm. we sent one writer to Asia, one to Europe, one to um, South America. Someone did a story on America, how we're developing players. And I went to Africa. And I made two trips over there for about two, two I, all told, it was about three, three and a half weeks. Mm -hmm. And being an African-American, African um, being over there in Africa was just a great experience. Because I, I, I study a lot of African history and African-American history. So I was already in that mindset. And so being able to go there, and going to Gore Island, where a lot of the you know slaves were were kept, and they had the slave dungeons, and seeing all of that, um, and just connecting with the Africans over there, and and obviously I'm uh, I'm melanin challenged, you know. So, <laughs> but being over there, I I found that a, a lot of them they knew I was African American, and they would because I we stayed in the city, like I stayed in Dakar. Okay. Uh, Senegal, which is the capital of Senegal. So we weren't out at a resort. We were actually in the city interacting with the, the people. Mm -hmm. And um, they would come up to me, some of them, and, and oh, African-American. And I think a lot of it's because they saw, they've seen African, like Halle Berry or Jason mm -hmm. Kidd, like African-Americans who are, you know, light-skinned and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but it was just a great experience, man. Um, in Africa, you know, there would be women with like uh, a hat on and the hat would have all of their like dolls or whatever they were selling. And they will walk around with all that on their head. And I'm telling you, if you went to one of those women at 10 o'clock in the morning and bought all her goods, you know, I'm going to buy all that on your head for a thousand dollars or whatever, you would ruin her day. Because they love the bartering, yeah. you know, like I would go because I was buying masks and and photo pictures and all types of stuff I brought home. And um, I would go there and be like, OK, I want this. How much? And the dude would be like, no, 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 no. Let's let's sit down. And I was like, no, nah, just give me a price. Give me a price. I, I got to go. I don't have all day. Just let me get around. No, no, no. It's the African way. We got to sit down. And so we would sit down and, and negotiate, you know, the cost. But, but it was fun. You know, it was it was a great experience. And I saw bas you know, I was over there at the first sports academy, basketball academy. And Masai Ujiri, who's now the, uh, the, the great president for the Toronto Raptors, he, that's where I met him and some mm -hmm. other people from the NBA over there. 
But that was just as an African-American, that was a great experience. And being able to travel the world. I've been to Kuwait. I've been to mm -hmm. um, Spain, London, uh, Rome, Serbia, all these places just covering basketball. Yeah. So I think that in general is the best, it, best experience. And I'll say too, working at ESPN, the magazine, because when you cover professional sports, at the highest level, you're going to travel a lot. Yeah. When I covered the Cavaliers or the Knicks or the Nets, I was at every game. I was 41 road games, 41 home games. So you're gone a lot from your family. And if you have a family and you cover pro sports, the bet for me, the best experience was writing for ESPN the magazine because if you wrote six stories, six big stories a year, that was mm -hmm. a lot for the magazine. Yeah. Right. So you didn't travel as much. Um, I might go, I would have six weeks to write a story or right. two months to write a story. So mm -hmm. I would just work in, I'd have a week of, of travel and go spend a week with the player, whoever I'm writing about, do all my reporting and then I'd be at home. And so I, so I was at home a lot more mm -hmm. at ESPN the magazine, but you're still covering sports at the highest level. And you actually got to know the players better than being a beat writer, right. which is, you wouldn't believe because as a beat writer, you're seeing them every day, but it's always in a basketball context, at practice, right. at, in the locker room after game, for the most part. Um, but as a magazine writer, you'd be at their houses, you're yeah. going out to dinner with them, you're meeting their family. So you really get to know them as people better. So that was good. But you know, then I kind of morphed into TV. And, and TV is great. It's, it's fun. You know, radio is fun. And so now, like, having started as a writer, I haven't written a word since I've been at Fox, since 2016. <laughs> and um, so now I'm just, you know, I do TV and radio and that's it. And I, and I enjoy it. Um, so that those are some of the, the better experiences that I've had. Um, I say my ultimate pinnacle uh, achievement was probably in 2011, 2010, 2011, when I was on ESPN's uh, flagship NBA show, NBA Countdown. It was me, Magic Johnson, Michael Wilbon, and John Barry. And that was our set for the whole year, um, our crew. And so Magic, of course, I grew up, you know, loving Magic Johnson. He was my favorite player. And um, so being able to get to know him and be on the set with him, that was a great, you know, great uh, experience to have. Right. Now, you know, it's interesting. You talk about family. You know, yes. you are um, in journalism, but you've also built somewhat of a family atmosphere, you know, yourself um, with your King Movement. Can you talk about um, the organization, the King Movement, and where did that idea come about? Yeah, the King Movement uh, is it's an acronym that stands for Knowledge, Inspiration, and Nurture Through God. And it, it is a national Christian men's movement. And the way, reason I got the, the idea for it, because it, it's, really a, 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 it's really a national brotherhood, and our, our goal in a nutshell is to help strengthen men in their individual walks with Christ so that we can be Christ-like Monday through Saturday, mm -hmm. or, or maybe I should say Sunday afternoon through 
Saturday, you know, <laughs> but, but basically outside of the church. So in our marriages, in our relationships with our children, uh, in the workplace, with our fraternity brothers, wherever it may be, that you, you know, you can be Christ-like. Right. And, and we do that through teaching, through accountability, through encouragement, support, and fellowship or brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And what happened was when I, I became a Christian my senior year in college. I mean, I grew up as a Catholic, going to Catholic schools, but as far as really having a relationship with Christ and living, trying to live it out in my life, that came my senior year in college. And, and when I graduated, I was working at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And um, I longed for brotherhood. Like I didn't know many, I was 21 years old. I didn't mm-hmm. know a lot of brothers my age that were really trying to live for the Lord. I knew guys that went to church, but as far as really trying to live it out in your daily yeah. life, I didn't know many. <clears throat> and I kind of longed for that brotherhood. I had brotherhood with my friends, with mm-hmm. my frat brothers, some of my teammates living in Cleveland, you know, but as far as guys that were, could relate to me in my journey with Christ, my faith, I didn't have that. Even the church I was at, which was a good church, the men were older, married, you know, I'm single, I'm young. So I wanted dudes I could relate to in terms of hip hop, culture, sports, you know, things outside of the church, but yet who loved the Lord. And and I, as I began to kind of meet guys around in Cleveland, where I was at in Cleveland, like that, I saw that they were kind of isolated too, you know. And mm-hmm. and and so I ended up seeing some of these guys. Um, you know, I, I saw a lot of guys who would be strong in their faith for six months, mm-hmm. and then fade for a year or strong for a year and then fade for three months, six months, whatever. And depending on your background, you know, we mm-hmm. call that backsliding. But, the, you know, I, I knew dudes who got who became Christians in prison or dudes who became Christians who had a street background. And for them, one of those down periods, you know, they back on the street selling drugs and they back in jail, you know. And I felt like one of the reasons, there's many, but one of the reasons that a lot of them would struggle like that was because they didn't have that brotherhood and they didn't have that group of men they could hang out with and kick it with who were going to encourage them in the direction they wanted to go with the Lord versus getting, you know, getting away from mm-hmm. their biblical principles. And so that's, those are some of the ideas that led me to want to start the King movement. And I came across a lot of guys doing great things on a local level. Mm-hmm. And I said, man, if we could unite, and work together, we could really have a huge impact. Um, so that's really was the the were the thoughts behind King. I wanted a masculine name, which King obviously is. I think that you know when you look at the church, particularly the black church, it's a o- overwhelmingly female. And and you look in the Bible, and you don't see like a dearth of men. You know, I mean, there, there are plenty of women of God, but, you know, it's not like they, where are the men? We don't have any men of God, you know, where, and so I'm like, are we presenting it well, the right way? You know, we should have, we shouldn't have this lack of men. And so, you know, we want to, you know, we wanted a masculine name and uh, to present the gospel in a way that could relate to men. 
Right. And so, you know, in doing that, we feel like, because we're very concerned about, you know, the social social issues and, and the African-American upliftment and quality of life for Black people in America. And we feel like if we can strengthen men, just those that claim to follow Christ, and, and you'll get some that want to convert and stuff, but just those that claim to follow Christ, if we can get us to live out our faith, we'll strengthen our families, we'll strengthen our children, yep. we'll strengthen our communities, and that will improve the quality of life for our people in this country. So in that, in a nutshell, is, is what led me to start King. I think that's very important that you, you that you mentioned that, you know, you, you being in the public eye and honestly, you don't hear a lot of people discuss things like that. I want I want to make a statement that I'm, that's going to lead into my next um, my next question. We did an event in Houston and it's funny that you mentioned, you know, with the social issues and all of that. Ovi uh, Dodson, he's a, a former Harlem Globetrotter. Um, you know, he came out, talked to the kids and one of his messages to the young kids were you have to make positive choices. You gotta make good choices because the choices that you make at a young age, teenage year, it can possibly lead down the wrong path as an adult. And those consequences you could probably never come back for. So he started to get into the issues with, you know, the police and all that. He said, hey, cop pulls you over, put your hands on, you know, your hands on the steering wheel. Don't talk back, don't escalate anything. I was shocked because it's kind of rare that you hear a, a former player, a current player really speak out and say something like make positive choices. It's usually the other, well, the cops shouldn't have done this or right, right. whatever it is. But I think more people started to, you know, see um, what, what's going on in these communities. And I think it's a very powerful thing that you're doing to try to get kids together um, and adults together to try to have, you know, a, a right path. That led me to, I wanted to ask you, have you gotten ever any behind the scenes, any backlash for, you know, your Christian faith or, um, you know, what you're trying to do within the movement? Because you always hear about this culture of, well, you can't do this. You can't say that you can't do this. But have you ever gotten any backlash for, from this movement? Um, Not from the movement, at least not in my face. Um, I do, you know. At times in the past, on national TV, I've been asked about various topics as it relates to my faith, and I've spoken out and and been bold about it. And so I I think that, um, I do think there's one show in particular, I won't mention the name of the show, um, but it's when I was at ESPN. And, And most of the shows, like nothing really changed. I kept, you know, being on all the shows. But this one show had told me, you know, I was one of the backups for when the hosts were out. And they had told me I was the best backup they had. They loved me and they were bringing me in. And then after uh, I spoke out about a certain issue, I was never one there again, <laughs> you know. And, um, and I think, like, one of the reasons I left ESPN to go to Fox was that Fox wanted me as an opinionist and a personality and a commentator. They didn't, they, so ESPN wanted to keep me in a role as a reporter. And they wanted me to chase news, break news, report news. And Fox wanted me as someone who could give my opinions and my analysis, which appealed more to me at this stage of my life. And 
ESPN got to a point where they really didn't want me, for the most part, I wouldn't say exclusively, but they didn't want me on shows that might end up discussing social issues. Um, that they didn't want me to bring a certain opinion in, you know, um, because they, they, they couldn't control what I was going to say. And they might not agree with what I was going to say, you know. Um, and so I did know that, like, they, that's why they wanted me just as a reporter. You know, they didn't want me anymore on a first take where, you know, you're discussing a plethora of issues. You're giving your opinion. You know, it could be race. It could be all types of things. And um, so they, they, I, that, it wasn't overt. And they weren't, you know, they offered me a contract. It, you know, it wasn't like they fired me or moved on from me. But I moved, you know, they did want me to stay in this role where I wasn't really giving my personal views and opinions. Um, I, I'd like to address what you said about the Globetrotter, which I think was great. Um, because one thing I tell young men, men especially, but kids, period, um, when I go to speak to them, when I was in Cleveland and I was, when I graduated from college and I was in Cleveland covering high school sports, my free time, I was out in the community. I was in the projects, I was in the prisons, the juvenile detention centers. I was out in the hood, like just engaging with people, talking to people and all that. And I, I, I developed a lot of friendships with guys in those, from those backgrounds. And what I saw was that, you know, a lot of young men, when they would uh, get to a point where they're 19 or 23 or 25 or whatever, I would call it a revelation of responsibility where they realize, okay, I want to do the right thing. I want to be a, a good solid citizen. Right. I want to be a guy who can have a family and you know, all that stuff. But many of them had dug such a hole for themselves when they were young. So they, if they graduate from high school, their grades were horrible or they got a GED or they went to the juvenile detention center or they can't, they went, spent time in jail or prison. And when they came out with a new mind of, okay, I want to, I don't want to hustle no more. I don't want to mm -hmm. sell drugs anymore. I don't want to be on the street and risk going to jail anymore. Um, it was tough because now they got a record. They don't really have skills. They don't really have an education. And so while the people they're competing with were up here, they're down here. It's not impossible. Mm -hmm but it made it more challenging for them. And then I did see some who it, it, it was too much of a challenge for them. Yeah. And they ended up doing something eat for easy money or something like that. And so you're absolutely right about, and I tell kids, I say, look, you may not understand the importance of education right now. You're 14, you know, why am I studying geometry? Why do I need to learn American history year after year after year? You know, like I get it. But do the best you can, even mm -hmm. if you don't understand how you're going to use this later, because there will come a point in your life when you say, I want to do the right thing. And if you, that's what happened with me. I mean, I wasn't out on the streets, but I'm saying when I decided I want to be a sports writer, because my father had always been like, boy, you, you better get good grades if you want to play football or basketball or whatever. Mm -hmm. I had good grades through school. And so when I 
I figured out what I wanted to do. People looked at my res at my uh, transcript or whatever, saw good grades. Mm -hmm. I was involved at school, and you know, so that enabled me to them to take a chance on me. If my grades had been horrible, I could be like, yeah, I want to be a sports writer. But if my grades were bad, they may have written me off from the beginning and not yeah. given me that shot. So that's very important. And then I'd say this. You mentioned a lot about, I think what you were saying about the Globetrotter and even the King movement is a do for self mentality of let's do what we can do. You know, you hear this all the time in sports, control what you can control. You know? yes. So let's control what we can control. And I think on television, when you see pundits talking about, say, the plight of African-Americans, you really get one of two extremes. You get those that focus solely on the system and mm -hmm. the obstacles in the system, as you said, the police and what they're doing wrong and all that. And then you get the other side that just focuses on us. Oh, just pull up our pants. Oh, we got to get married. We got to, you know, uh, we got to value education over sport, all that. And it's really a mix. You know, the system does, there is systemic and structural racism. And there are things that we need to address in the system. And there are things we can do as a people to help improve our quality of life as well. So that's what we do with the King Movement. We address both the whole situation and we don't allow ourselves to be pigeonholed in one side where it's all, let's blame black people for all their problems. And let's blame the system. None of it is our, we, we don't have any responsibility. We can't control, we're just helpless victims. No, we're not taking that approach either. So it's, I think that's important. And even now, as we push for change, which I think is warranted, and we're pushing, you even see reparations happening in different parts of the country. As we push for that, which I think is good, we can't lose sight of the responsibilities we have as well and the things we can do in our community that we can do as individuals to improve our plight. Yes, we got to focus on unarmed African-Americans being shot by police, but we're killing each other too. And we, we in, in higher numbers. And we got to focus on that too. I think African history is so important because in black history, black American history is important as well. But, but if, when you, and that, that is very important to see how we've overcome. But at the same time, if you only study black American history, you're starting at the bottom, you know, and you're starting as slaves. We need to know that we had great kingdoms. We had people who were Africans who were greatly educated, who were, you know, in the various religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, like we need to know all of that so that we understand we're, we don't start in slavery. You know, we had great kingdoms long before we were brought to America and that can help build up the racial esteem of right. many African-Americans because there are African-Americans and even I've talked to Africans about this. There are African-Americans and Africans who have really high self-esteem individually, but they have really low racial esteem. So they themselves think as an, I'm as good as anybody, me as an individual, white, black, Indian, whatever. But as a race, right. they don't think 
blacks as a whole are as good or can do as much. So that's why I think it's very important that we study history and know about the great things we achieved that are as, as remarkable as those that people of other races have achieved. Uh, and you don't just start at the bottom. Right, right. Now you have, like you mentioned earlier, you have two daughters and this is a, a two part question. What is the message that you try to get across to the young men in the King movement? What's the primary message? And also you having two young daughters, well, not at real young, but they're, 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 they're adults, young adults. Um, what's the message that you tell them being young black women in this, you know, in this, this world that we're in right now? Yeah. And in the King movement, um, we see, as we know, um, there's a lot of confusion as to what manhood is nowadays. <laughs> you know, um, That's an understatement to say there's a lot of confusion. Um, so we teach biblical manhood. You know, you need a standard. It's important to have a standard. What am I aspiring to do? What am I aspiring to be? What We all need standards to, to live by and shoot for. And so we use a biblical standard of manhood. So we teach our men to try to their best to live up to the biblical standard of manhood. You are a family man. You want to provide for your family. You want to raise your children, be there for your children, follow certain principles in life. That's what manhood is about. We we tend to we think manhood is synonymous with Christ likeness. Cuz we say Jesus Christ was the ultimate man, so we try to follow his example and that this led in the Bible or put in the Bible. So that's what we teach our men. Um, As far as my daughters, you know, and they're 23, they're twin girls, they're 23. Um, Man, raising them, it was important for us to, uh, as we talked about, like to develop their, obviously we wanted them to grow up and, and believe in God and love God and live for God. So in that regard, we, we tried to, we presented God as like, it's, it's a, he's the ultimate, but it's just a part of our lifestyle. Like Sunday, even though we go to church on Sunday, Sunday was not a special day of the week. Like, oh, this is our God day or this is our God time. No, God is Monday through Sunday. Like he was a part of our life and everything, you know, music, um, just our conversation. So I wanted them to understand that following God was a lifestyle as, as a, or in a relationship as opposed to a religion. So that's one thing, spiritually speaking. And we had family devotionals and Bible studies and prayer and all that stuff. Um, as far as race, we, we definitely wanted them to grow up with a healthy racial esteem too. So the books we read, you know, when they were children, we read a lot of books to them that were had African-American characters and black history in our house. We have a, my wife is, is really, she's the brainchild behind this because her mom's house is like this, but I love it. But our house is full of African art, African-American art photos, you know, so you grow up with a, a healthy self-esteem, not only individually, but also about your race. Um, we celebrated Kwanzaa. And we would talk to them about the seven principles 
of Kwanzaa and, and we did it biblically, but we would, you know, talk to them about that. I taught them about African, African people or black people in the Bible and presented them, you know, told them in the pages of scripture who, who was African-American, things like that. And I tell you what, even with doing all of that, in America, you are inundated. It's a majority white country and we know the historic racism in the country. So you still are inundated, inundated with images, whether it's television, magazines, whatever, that promote whiteness as the norm or the ultimate. And so even with all that we did, my daughters still, there were times, like we bought them black dolls, but there came a point where they, they wanted some white dolls. And we were like, nah, you, you black, you, you, want, you should want black, <laughs> you know? And, and, and what happened, so we taught them all of this. And then in high school, they went to a private school. And so in high school, they went to a conference for African-American students that went to private schools. And they dealt with a lot of these racial issues. And so when they came home from that conference, they both said it was life-changing, right? And that was the first time we really, they were like juniors in high school. That was the first time we had a conversation about race where they really understood what I was talking about. And it was a back and forth. It wasn't just daddy teaching them about race and what mm -hmm. you might encounter and this and that. They were coming back and understanding and yeah, this, you know, and, and so um, it's a challenge uh, for, so you, we, you know, my, I've seen it with my brothers and the way they raise their kids too. It's because your the general education they're getting in school isn't really teaching a lot of this African American history and stuff like that. Right. And it's hard to supplement your education for your kids because they're learning, you know, the primary stuff is what they're getting in school. And so, but even with all that, it was a challenge. But, you know, as they've grown up, they've come to understand it. They appreciate what we did for them. And they, they you know, like, they they are in a they are in a great place spiritually and culturally, you know, and um, so it's benefits. So I would say to parents, that it's important to do that. But but while you do it, while you teach your kids Black history and all of that stuff, I was conscious. I was like, I do not want them growing up feeling like victims. Mm. And it's a fine line you have to walk because obviously. We have been victimized in this country. So, and a lot of black history is overcoming, you know, being uh, discriminated against. So I wanted to teach it in a way where it wasn't like they would feel like victims or like, I can't do, I can't achieve as much as the white, my white classmates or my Asian classmates. Or, and we are able to do that. And I think part of that is also teaching African history and black biblical history, where you have these blacks who weren't slaves and weren't having to overcome discrimination. They just did great things, you know? Um, so that's very important. Cause you, like, I didn't grow up knowing a lot of black history, but I grew up being very proud to be black. And my, cause my father was very pro-black and I, I grew up with that, but I didn't know a lot of black history or anything like that, but I never felt I can't be as smart as my white classmates. Right. 
And I went to a, I was the, my brother and I were the only black kids in our school when I was in Syracuse in seventh and eighth grade. And I was the valedictorian of my class, mm-hmm. you know, as, as the only black student. So I, I wanted them to feel like, man, there's no obstacles. Don't right. feel like, you know, you're a victim. And we were, thankfully, we were able to do that. They both went on to great colleges and, and did well in school and all that. You know, we had uh, Kelly Oubre Sr. on, who's Kelly Oubre Jr.'s father. And we also, you know, spoke with Terry Cummings, who's an ordained minister. And the, the message is, I was like, everything you're saying is very powerful. And I'm so glad that you're talking about it because Kelly Oubre Sr. talked about how, you know, he was a single father, but he did not let that deter him to ha- how he was going to raise his kid and look where he is now. And even Terry Cummings, you know, being at the time in Chicago, he's in Atlanta now, but he talked about mentoring the young youth and telling them, you guys aren't victims. This is the path that you, that you need to take if you want to be successful. I think it's gentlemen like you in the community that mm-hmm. needs to be, like I said, applauded more of because there are men out there that are having organizations. There are men that are telling the young kids, especially the young black kids, don't, you're not a victim. Right. Don't let TV, don't let everything else tell you you're a victim. It starts at home, you know, and if you do things the right way, you can be successful. You know? Absolutely. And you know, a friend of mine said this, um, Boyce Watkins, victimization is, might be a, a path on your journey or might be a stop on your journey, but it's not a destination. Destination. People have been victimized. I mean, individuals, groups of people, you know, they're, they're, there's no denying that. But it's not a destination. It's not your identity. Like, okay, you've been victimized. We acknowledge it. But now how are we going to move past that? How are we going to move from victim to victor? Because that's really what you are. And um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, man. And we can't lose track of that, that message. Right, right. Now, we always ask our guests this question. Uh, it could be off the court, on the court, um, anything in life. What does being an American baller mean to Chris Boussard? <laughs> wow. Um, all right. I think being an American baller, you know, there's, I mean, there's the basketball aspect, there's a balling, you know, making money aspect. But I, I would say it is um, being the man that God's created you to be and raising your family, leading your family. thing. I was just reading an article today that said, you know, because men aren't being called on to do what men have historically done in, in all, virtually all societies are provide, protect and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of men are lost and they don't know what they need to do as men. Um, you know, uh, men who don't have families tend to and aren't married, you know, at, you know, at, a, at an age where you would typically be married, uh, they don't, they're not as happy. Um, they don't live as long, all that stuff. So uh, part of our, all men won't be married, but part, you know, a lot of men, you know, you're called to, pre, you know, raise children and lead your family. So I think being an American, but like the most pr- proud thing, thing I'm most proud is about is that my family is good. I've been married 26 years or almost 26 years. Um, my children are, you know, they graduate from college. They both have good jobs. They're on their own. 
you know, mm -hmm. and even though I miss them, I'm like, that's what it's supposed <laughs> to be. Like they, they can take care of themselves, you know? Yeah. And so that's really my greatest achievement. And um, so that to me, that's being an American baller is raising up the next generation to be independent and um, take care of themselves and still have a great relationship with them um, I, as adults, not just as parent child, but now as, as friends beyond just father and daughter. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. I, you know, just said that that is in line with what, again, American Baller is just being, just being a person, Amen. being a person that is contributing to the human race. Right. Just being a good person, right. you know. Right. Right. We, we appreciate you again, uh, mm -hmm. taking the time out, Mr. Bussar, to drop some knowledge uh, for our audience. Where can they uh, find more information about uh, King Movement? Yeah, if anyone is interested, in, you know, I do speaking engagements. Uh, you can go to chrisbroussardspeaks.com, chrisbroussardspeaks.com. And then with the King Movement, uh, it, our website is kingmovement.com. If anyone's interested uh, in joining King or getting involved, you can email us at king at kingmovement.com, king at kingmovement.com. And uh, we're, we're trying to build up you know, uh, as many men as we can, uh, like you said, who, who share these values and who, you know, espouse these values. Because uh, look, I, my wife's a doctor. My daughters are both, you know, independent women doing great. But we need, uh, we need strong men and strong women, you yeah. know? And so we, neither of us can go at it alone. And um, there needs to be a push to raise up men, particularly our African-American men. And so um, we're trying to build up an army of brothers that can be an example. I think a lot of our young men, they need examples yes. of real manhood, you know, um, that they can uh, attain to. We, we have this saying called mass mentorship where I, I won't, be, we can't touch every young man that needs a mentor or a father figure or something like that. But if, if from a distance, a young man can say, you know, there's this group out there, King, and they love God and they love family and they, you know, they're, they're respectable and they're principled and this, and that. that's what I want to be like. So yeah. we may never touch them physically, but they see and get inspired by our example. Like with, with president having Barack Obama as president of the United States, a lot of people didn't touch him, but seeing a black president gave them inspiration that I can hope to. So hope. that type of thing. Right. Yeah. All right. Appreciate you. All right. Thank you again, Mr. Boussard. Um, always a pleasure. You're welcome back anytime. Yeah, man. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, I definitely would love to come back. All right. Appreciate we'll have you. you back. All right. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yep. Thank See you. Bye-bye.